in that sense, I think cities are the mega structures that are the anthills of humanity. Are you interested in sustainability as resilience, harmony and well-being? What do you think about integrated sustainability? How can we learn from the past for a better future? Stay tuned for answers from Tom Bochart. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation that this is the right place? Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today I will interview Tom Bochert, the founder and director of Accept Integrated Sustainability. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, stages of grief in sustainability, Orchid City, the city of hope, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Tom is the founder and director of Accept Integrated Sustainability and the visionary force behind its development. He is also the chairman of the Environment Committee of the World Institute for Change Management and Innovation in Switzerland. Tom founded Except at the age of 19 in 1999 with a mission to find systemic solutions for our societal changes by combining science, business, design and communication. In the past decades, he has developed several hundred projects globally for groundbreaking sustainable cities buildings, businesses, policy and industry. Tom's vision shows that we can flourish globally when we simultaneously integrate environmental, societal, economic and technical aspects in our society. He is a frequent keynote speaker and author of the Symbiosis in Development, SID, framework and books. And with that, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time on the podcast. I highly appreciate your appearance. Let's jump right in. What does the future of cities mean to you? Yeah, it's a big question. First of all, thank you for your invitation to be on this podcast, talking about one of my favorite topics of all time. In a sense, I see cities as the physical manifestation of our society. The cities teach us about how we have organized our society in the past, how it has for some parts of our history grown organically around our activities, our beliefs, our economy, our culture and education. But at some point we started the Industrial Revolution and that led to us treating the city like we would design a big machine with blueprints, a piece of paper on the table and just a few individuals drawing lines and determining the centuries of development that would follow thereafter. In that sense, I think cities are the mega structures that are the anthills of humanity. They are both a reflection of who we are and what we are as the infrastructure that contain all of our lives. Obviously, there's also people that are not living in cities, but as probably all of your listeners are aware, we've switched the majority of the world population towards urban inhabitants some time ago already. And I believe that the way that we approach and we think about, we talk about, and then how we manifest our cities is genuinely going to be the pathway through which all of our most stubborn and most challenging 
crises that we're facing at the moment may find a resolution or not. As you probably know a little bit about my work, I do quite a variety of things, work with agriculture and industry, as well as policy and software development or knowledge sharing, educational things and so on. But it's really the city development and the urban planning part of things that make me feel like there we have the keys that can resolve the massive challenges that we have ahead. So the future of cities is the future of humanity, in my view. Just easy as that. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing that you said that cities are the physical manifestation of society. In my PhD, I heard many architects, urban planners, and engineers describe the city as the manifestation of humanity. So there are recurring themes in this topic, which is reassuring and frightening at the same time. Because you also mentioned that the city can be the challenge and also the key to the global challenges we face. Yeah. Now, you also talked about that people also don't live in cities. What does urban life includes for you? Can we say that who is not living in a big city isn't living an urban life? I don't think that there are that sharp distinctions. I also don't think it serves us any purpose to treat the urban experience and the process of creating urban environments any different from those in rural areas. They are one and the same, and even better, they need to be designed and developed in conjunction with each other. It's a typical habit of people, Hegelian dialectic, to put everything in opposites against each other on some kind of slide rule. But this is not a useful divide. The the city cannot do without the hinterland and vice versa, and people don't stick to one environment or the other either. They have distinct contextual differences, if you want, but also those are dependent on one another from their very foundations, from the energy material flows between them to the mobility aspects to how biodiversity crosses boundaries and completely ignores human categorization. I don't think there is such a thing as an urban experience or an urban lifestyle versus a rural one. There could be lenses through which you investigate certain questions that could be interesting. I see it as a tool. That's more or less it. So the future of cities is the future of humanity. Are you optimistic about the future of humanity? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I can tell you after it's almost been 25 years now that I've been working on systemic, sustainable innovation That period of time, you personally get confronted with various stages of understanding and acceptance of the challenge that we are facing. I am even playing with the idea of writing another book, which is about comparing the stages of grief that the human passes through with the stages of crisis acceptance, if you will. And a lot of people find themselves going through that and then sometimes getting stuck in one of the phases, for example, phase of anger, where you feel that it's unfair towards developing countries, that it's unfair towards all of the living creatures on our planet that we're subjecting to our own failure of managing our living environments. 
through denial. You know, it usually starts with denial in which, yeah, it's not so bad or we'll be fine. Technology will save us and all of that. And I find myself in various of these stages and they never entirely disappear. So there are moments where I find myself frustrated or anger or bargaining. Yeah, maybe we can just make a little bit of a concession over there and then we can save humanity over there. But no matter how you look at it, if you spend so much time living in and wanting to live in the reality of what's really going on, you're going to at some point have to accept and realize that we face a period of time in which major catastrophes will happen that are the cause of our own doing. And what they will be exactly, yeah, no one can predict. That's like predicting the weather a year in advance. It's a chaotic system and systems thinking helps us understand that we cannot predict that in any particular way, but we can understand the patterns that we're seeing in the particular behavior that the system and our cities, therefore, will be facing and will be facing a lot of catastrophes. But we have been facing a lot of catastrophes for as long as humanity has been around. I wrote an article a while ago which studies the actual analyses of both the military complex and the insurance companies around the world, how they are reacting to the predictions of climate change. And this is really fascinating because they are two entities on the surface of our society that have nothing to gain from either underestimating the effects, because then if you're an insurance company, you underestimate it, you get too little money in and stuff happens, and then you have to pay for all of it, and then you go bankrupt. And the military agencies all around the world that maintain a huge amount of physical assets, buildings, airports, infrastructure lines, and for example, the American military system has bases all around the world. So climate change will heavily affect all of that infrastructure. And if they underestimate how much repair they need to do or how much they need to change to keep managing this, yeah, they'll run into financial issues. But they also don't stand to gain from overestimating it. And so these two parties are fascinating to look at, to understand how people that literally have the assignment to get it right are looking at what the potential consequences are. And they are vast and clear. And their projections are that nothing significant will change in the pathway towards those events. Basically, they are come out and said, yeah, the predictions have been right for the last 20 or 30 years. They're going to be right for the next 20 or 30 years. And maybe we can do something about it. Yay. But we don't think we will. That's what they say. Now, I have, in the light of that projection, a more optimistic perspective. So if you want to call me an optimist, I might be an optimist that is arguing from a position of realism, which is a pessimistic one. So I have hope that we can steer the karma of our projected pathway and bend it towards the positive side. But that can only happen when you have full acceptance on all of the things that we know will very likely happen. Because you can't create a healthy, adaptive, resilient system that will help you to go through these places without clearly and very solidly identifying what those problems are and what we need to do to deal with them once they happen. 
we cannot prevent the loss of human life. We cannot prevent misery and war because that's going to happen. Just how much misery and how much war will we have? Yeah, so that's a very happy, positive note to start off the podcast with. But I felt, and I've written it in my first book also, is that we are in the business of preventing war. That's it. That's the worst thing that can happen to us is that all of us will start fighting each other. That's the culmination of all of the disasters. And that's what both climate change as our resource challenges and our biodiversity issues, as well as our financial discrepancies in ownership and power distribution around the world. That's what they will lead to war. Yeah. So try to not do that. (laughs) That would be really nice if we wouldn't go to war over resources and lifestyle choices. Now, Which you know, we have been, right? So all the wars in the past 50 years are resource wars. Ukraine essentially is a resource war. All the geopolitical tensions now can be sourced back to major resource issues. And I'm not really talking about land ownership so much because land ownership used to be one of the major resources that you want to get through a war. But we're talking about raw materials for production, industrial production, like the rare earth materials that can be found in Ukraine, as well as Taiwan. You know, you wonder why China owns Taiwan? Well, those are not big secrets. The trade routes also around the world, how stuff goes from one place to another, are major sources of political tension. And they will be increasingly pressured as resources are starting to become scarce. And that's where we have a really interesting challenge because, for example, the climate change scenarios that have been sketched by the IPCC, which is invaluable work, really, but for their transition pathways to happen for the next 20, 30 years, converting X amount to renewables, converting X amount to nuclear, maybe converting X amount to elimination or whatever. All of those scenarios require a vast amount of natural resources for us to enable to build the wind turbines and solar panels and things like that. There are quite a few projections that the amount of resources to do that in the current way do not exist. They exist on planet Earth, but they're not feasible to all extract from the Earth. So the mining industry has limits and they have limits to how much they can get out per time frame. And they can't get that out. So here we see a climate-based projection policy intersecting another world crisis that they're not really looking at that carefully. So we're going to have a lot of these things. Then resources will be reserved for renewable energy systems, for example, which in its functioning essence is fine. But they will also be necessary for certain medical things, for building certain urban structures. And everyone's laying claim on them, but there's not enough to go around. That's going to be an increasingly difficult issue. And not just for places that don't have the financial resources just to get whatever they want, but also for developing places where certain prices are going to shoot through the roof. You're going to get a very unstable economic system. And yeah, when you're building cities or infrastructural things, the last thing you need is your sand to triple in cost. It really messes up what you're trying to do. So those are some pretty big challenges. And in that process, the interesting thing is if you look at it from complex systems perspective, 
every person within society has a role in kind of understanding what will happen in their own little bubble from the checkout counter of the supermarket to a psychologist to researchers at a university, policymakers, designers, engineers. Everyone will have a role in helping that transition. And that's, again, fascinating to me. That's a source of opportunity and a source for innovation. But you're going to have to do it, which currently really isn't happening yet. You mentioned this material flow from the hinterland to the cities, and you also talked about how we can have wars for resources, which is such a happy thought. Yeah. Couldn't recycling and circular economy help with these material shortages you were talking about? They are useful constructs and worthwhile processes and goals to pursue. But when it comes down to it, no. Okay. They are not enough and they are not nearly enough. When I started at the well, end of the 90s, I also believed that we could resolve these things through, for example, recycling or cradle or circular economy. But we can't because the majority of the resources that we'll need for this transition still have to come from the earth. First, we need more of that. Even if you would recycle 100% of everything that is currently within locked in the system, we wouldn't have nearly enough. We are stuck to this linear economy for at least the next 30 to 40 years until we go over that hump where enough stuff is circulating around to meet our basic needs of Energy, water, food, infrastructural movements, economic trade, communication, transportation, healthcare, and arranging our built environment. Those basically are the essences of life. World population is still growing, not as fast anymore as it was, which is fantastic. But at the same time, we want to create increased affluence, especially in the developing world. Decreased poverty, increased income equality, increased educational standards, etc., those are absolutely essential from a equity, social justice point of view. Without that, we will get war again, because at some point, maybe overdue even, some people go, hey, we've got nothing. You guys have everything. That's not fair. Here, I'll run my sword through you. And that's what you <laughs> don't want. And that is a complex interrelationship. And the circular economy only has an answer for a very small part of it, which is how do we deal with the reconnection of energy material loops within our society, which I have been studying so many circular economy projects so far. A lot of them have a positive contribution, but not nearly as significant as you would hope. So we need much more fundamental things to address this issue. And the circular economy is just a very limited domain answer to a much larger problem that it doesn't cover. That doesn't mean that I don't think that should be pursued. I think it should. I think it also teaches us lessons. Maybe that's even the most important one to how do we transition our systems and maybe pursuing the circular economy is one pursuit. But the more fundamental pursuit, which is the policy and economic market structures, they are more important. They are more fundamental. And also the circular economy can't do without that transition. So the transition of how we regard ownership, how we regard resource rights, how we 
deal with the interrelation between our lives as an individual versus the work that we're doing, the free time that we have, the education that we provide to our kids and to ourselves. Those more fundamental questions, they need to be resolved in its foundation before the energy material resources can follow to click in place. Because if, you know, for example, the entire world population is still forced to travel significant distances towards a workplace, you're going to have that energy demand, whether or not you're in a recycled electric car or in a circular bicycle, doesn't matter. That energy demand is going to exist and it's locked into how we've organized our society. So addressing that is much more effective than to say, okay, instead of normal cars, we'll build circular cars. You want to get rid of cars. You have to. I love cars, by the way. I have a big weakness for cars. But they should go in the direction of the horse. There's still a lot of horses. They're great. People have the money and the want to put in the effort of maintaining and riding horses. Cool. So I'm sure there'll be fans of cars and you'll be able to go to car shows and look at them and maybe to a limited degree drive a bunch. But they shouldn't be part of our required everyday life. And we shouldn't all have one sitting out in front of our house. That's uncomfortable because we don't want to give it up. And we as a society will have to make decisions that will fairly affect all of us and will drive us to having and leading a life in which you just don't need one. And then life is pleasant and manageable and all great. And then maybe have advantages. You maybe have a higher disposable income because you don't need to maintain the car. And that's then interwoven within how we plan our cities, of course, and the public transportation systems. So we see how all of this starts connecting with each other. And the way that we manifest our cities are the blueprint of that. So, for example, there are examples like this all over the world, but function segregation. Brasilia, which is one of the best examples. Brasilia is the futurist utopian city, which is the capital of Brazil, built in the shape of a bird by Oscar Niemeyer. I use that as one of the examples in the research that I do in Utopian Cities as to how not to do it. That's the completely wrong way to do it, where the left wing is housing and the head is governmental program and you know industry is all the way on the other side of the city. So you've got this program which persists throughout both supply chains as well as our 24-hour life cycle of a person going to work, pick up the kids from school, that sort of stuff. And we have geographically separated them, which means that you are forced to use some kind of motorized transport to facilitate. And that is so hard to fix. Once you've built it, move your industrial sector to be micro industry that's embedded within the heart of the city. You can't do that. It's very hard. Let's just say that. The cities that we build now, the neighborhoods we design and build now, we have a very urgent pressure to radically change the way that we design our new neighborhoods, our new cities, to redesign our existing cities, to allow a different manifestation of what our life looks like. And that is incredibly hard because I think most urban planners, most city development companies, as well as those in governments that help to design policy, are still stuck in the 80s in the thinking and their approach. Certainly, there's a whole bunch of bright minds that already foresee that this needs to happen and they're fighting for it. Still, the vast minority of urban planning and city development 
is truly aware and is truly working on accepting that new reality. So I work in the design of new cities, both as consultants and designers, where we get hired by mostly municipalities or big real estate developers to help design neighborhoods and cities. But I'm also often asked to be in the jury of competitions or be a reviewer of certain research or strategies that are out there. And it's maybe one in every two or three hundred plans that I see that truly embed this kind of understanding. And that's pretty frightening, but one in two or three hundred is better than none at all. So when I started my work, there were none at all. And I also had to form my own mind in thinking around this, but there is a long way to go there. One of the things that I fear is that we're not learning from the past. We are not learning enough from both the normal cities, the normal way that we've been doing things, because one thing's for sure, certain parties within the network of things make a lot of money by doing it the way that it is being done now. And the way that we've structured our organizations means that they basically have a legal obligation to keep it that way. Can't really blame them for it, but it does need to change. And they're not willingly going to give that up and they have no interest in that. So if you as a human kind of circulate in those bubbles, for example, many of the friends that I have that work for large real estate firms, I'm involved a lot in Southeast Asia, especially in Vietnam, but also in the Philippines and other places in the development of gigantic plants. Like I'm talking about thousands of acres that are being built out of nowhere, both residential living cities, but also the new factories of the world where China is basically losing its grip on the fabrication market and the production of a lot of our industrial goods is moving to Vietnam because it's much more stable, it's cheaper, and all of the new products that we deal with, they need often a new factory to build. You know, it's not the same factories over and over that build all of this new stuff around us. No, they build new factories to do that. And so I see big international, also European and American companies go to Vietnam and they go, wow, that's a great place to build a factory. So boom, and they build 300 hectares of industrial zoned stuff, hyper modern things that still completely live in a fundamentally outdated perspective of what our society should be like. But they have to do that because that's their little corner of the world. So you have all of these different things. You can do it very differently. And that can be in your advantage as a company or as a factory or as a country management or a city government or something. But then you have to take in a deep breath. You have to dive into this and then reproject your manifestation of reality into the world that we live. And then you can follow suit and then you can make things that will both work for the world of today while they can become bricks in the foundation of how we can operate our future tomorrow. And that's really what I'm working on. That's my job. And so the fear in not learning from the past, I mentioned a few examples, but I've done some research into utopian cities and it was a lot of fun working with a historian. So we're looking from the garden cities to the disaster of Fort Landia, the industrial town built by Henry Ford in Brazil, to Brasilia, Arcosanti, but also the development of the American suburb celebration. 
but also cities closer to home. So I live in Amsterdam, which is a fascinating case study to begin with. But there's a brand new city right next to it called Almere, which not a lot of people who are not from the Netherlands will know, which was both a success and an absolute disaster. I'm working with the city government to try to improve the city which is fascinating because, you know, it's a well-to-do, open-minded, progressive country with a city and a place that does have a lot of resources. But even for them, it's very difficult to try to warp into that. And then when we look at the really big examples that we currently have, I'm just going to name three. We've got Mazdar City, which was the utopian sustainable city in the desert in the Middle East. That was more or less completed and then more or less declared as a failure. It started off with a design from Foster and Partners as the urban plan, becoming entirely carbon neutral city, super high tech, etc. It had billions invested in it. And I think it was last year when the official press release was sent out that it's been declared a failure. They will not meet their goals, not even close. They won't get near carbon neutrality. They've only built a fraction of what they set out to do because it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And that's a disaster from a financial perspective for the people that have invested in it. But it's also a massive lesson. It's a huge lesson. And that's extremely valuable. But most people are not looking at it as a lesson. And so we get Toyota Woven City, which is the utopian smart city being built in Japan by Toyota, and it makes some of the very same mistakes, and it even makes a similar mistake as Brasilia, because that city is designed in the shape of its logo. So we learned from Brasilia that a city design is not an aesthetic exercise. You shouldn't want to make your city look like anything from the sky. That is a completely weird, sentimental, symbolic gesture which adds no value to a city. In fact, it causes huge problems every time that is done. So if you're an urban planner worth half your weight, then you don't do that. And I think most urban planners understand. But here we go. We've got the other woven city built in the shape of the logo. Wow. And a completely technocratic technofocus, which is understandable because it's a research project from Toyota, which is, of course, a technology company. But still, it's completely technologically covered with sensors and everything is automated and drones and whatnot. That's all fine. Those technologies may help, but they don't replace the fundamental foundations of how to build a good city, which doesn't need any of that. Last but not least, I'm sure has been brought up in other podcasts that you've run, is Neom the Line, which is just the ultimate manifestation of hubris. It's basically the Babylonian tower of our age. It is from any rational perspective, whether or not it's financial or sociological or simply structural, like structural engineering-wise or energy material management. It's a disaster before the first brick was laid down in the sand. This should not happen. It's a waste of resources of gigantic proportions that will be an utter failure and disaster. And Mazdar City has had a function is to show us, and we shouldn't do that sort of thing, but no, let's build a hundred mile linear city surface through turbo trains in the middle of the most inhospitable place on earth. Yeah, sounds good. The problem with Neom is it draws attention and it draws attention and it draws 
oohs and ahs, and it draws a lot of money and physical resources. Now, all of those elements, including the oohs and ahs, they are an expendable resource. We should be having the oohs and ahs for projects that do fundamentally contribute to humanity's transition towards a sustainable society. Not these excessive, I'm going to fly to Mars and build a colony nonsense, which fine, if they want to do it, probably the Mars mission is it's less bad than Neon, because at least it's done on a planet that's does bother us. And it's, you know, so far-fetched that it won't consume that much money, yeah, but physical resources. But Neom will. And Neom is displacing indigenous population already. They have been kicked out of the land and some life has been lost there already. So morally, from an ethical perspective, Neom the line has already failed. So the oohs and ahs need to go to projects that do really help. And there are just not that many of them. So in the last... Three years, I've been working with my team. I have a team of architects and urban planners, but also of fundamental scientists, systems thinkers, communicators, business developers, finance experts, biologists, and so on, to really have an integrated perspective on this challenge. We've been working on a framework that does this, that is a fundamental foundation for sustainable societies. And this is more of a process than a design approach, I would say, in that anytime we develop a blueprint of its kind in a certain place, it will be quite different because the context of that particular place, its climate, its culture, its economic cycles, they are helping to shape what that place will then be like. But they do have certain parallels between them. And this is called Orchid City. And we've been successfully prototyping fully self-sustained city models now that are entirely self-sustaining in all of the basic resources, energy, water, construction materials, waste management, and food, most importantly, as well as being climate adaptive, socially just, and generation-proof, and not least important of all, affordable, something that can be paid for by an average family that can live there and then provides everything they need to persist. So not just the energy materials, not just the food, but also the jobs that they need, the education that they need, the entertainment that they need, the social connectivity that they need. All of those things integrated into an urban model. And that urban model makes a lot of money and saves a huge amount of impact. So that's the outcome of our experiments and prototypes is that if you actually layer all these things together, you get huge advantages. And by doing so, you can both continue to build from a real estate perspective and make a profit, as well as providing something that remains affordable for people that live there. And that's really the sweet spot that you want to get so that it becomes scalable and we can start doing stuff like this around the world. Now, going back to those oohs and ahs, so it's called Orchid City, and we do promote this around the world, trying to find locations and trying to find investment mostly for us to be able to start building the first ones. The oohs and ahs that Neon the Line takes are oohs and ahs that don't go to Orchid City. Because Orchid City is realistic. It's not a pipe dream that will be a giant disaster, but it also doesn't look like a glass monolith from 2001 Space Odyssey in the desert, which is a pretty picture. 
but it's nonsense. Orca City is not nonsense and looks more conventional. It has characteristics of the way that we currently build our cities because a lot of things about it, especially historic cities, they work really well and we can learn from that. So we can apply those without reinventing the wheel. So you look at it and you go, wow, that looks very nice because they do look very pleasant and wonderful. There's a lot of greenery. It's all ecosystems interwoven into everything. But they don't give you this sci-fi, completely radical new reality vibe. And so the oohs and ahs would be a little bit less. And as a consequence that it's harder for us to find investors. It's harder for us to find traction in newspapers and things like that. So, for example, in-depth podcasts like this, yes, there'll be fascination and appreciation for that. But in the bite-sized TikTok world, where everything needs to be summarized in 10 to 15 seconds, that's tough. So we are noticing that also there is a limit in resources of how much money you can pour into crazy utopian city ideas. There's a limit in spaces. There's a limit in political willpower to do it. In communication airspace, how many front pages do you have to communicate ideas? How much energy do we have to say ooh or ah about whatever it is? And so one of my biggest fears is that we won't learn from the past. We will continue going down these folly directions and we won't have the enough attention for those more complex but more refined ideas on how we can actually properly do it. That's an important thought. It was really important. What does sustainability mean to you? Do you want the easy birthday party answer or do you want the answer that took me 15 years to write a book about it? I think the latter one. So a bit of context, I started off wanting to do work on sustainable projects. And while I was actually doing them, I found out that the actually definition that is being used is not usable. So you've got the United Nations formal definition, which is the Brundtland definition. Sustainable development is development that doesn't take opportunity away from future generations, which is a very inspiring and visionary definition, which also doesn't work at all as a definition because it doesn't say what it really is. It just says what it would lead to. So it's more of a statement of desired outcome. It's a goal. It's not a definition of what it is. That caused trouble because when we were doing stuff, we couldn't test it. Is this leading to truly a sustainable society or not? We don't really have a definition that we can test against. This caused serious problems. Quite a few projects that had the best of intentions, but that's also the thing you pave the road to hell with, which is what happens a lot. So we came up with a new one and partially from the idea, and that's the birthday party version, is that basically sustainability is about humanity continuing to live a worthwhile life on this planet. It's what we want to achieve. Sustainability is a state of our society on our planet. And while humanity is running around, it changes. Society changes all the time. And it needs to be able to do that for a very practical reason that our context, our environment changes all the time, and we need to be able to adapt with it. But we ourselves change all the time as well, our culture, our laws, and so on. So we need to be able to make adjustments so that we can continue to thrive in that sense. So sustainability is a state in which we can continue to move around, change things while being in that sustainable state, which means that we can continue to live and procreate in a worthwhile manner 
so not in a way that everyone's suffering, continue to inhabit this planet. That That's really what it's about. So the, the definition, the formal one, the one that we wrote the book about and wrote the whole symbiosis and development framework around, which is, by the way, open source and freely available, is using that as its center. So it's defining that sustainability is a state of a complex dynamic system. And that in the state of sustainability, a society, whether or not it's a city or country or the whole planet, doesn't need additional resources from outside of its system boundary. It can continue to withstand unexpected events without collapsing. So an earthquake, tsunami, famine, disease, these things happen and we survive them. But at a certain point, it's possible that society becomes brittle, as it's called, and it continues, but it just needs that last little tap that will flip it over the edge towards collapse, which is what happened to the Roman Empire, to the Mayan Empire, to the Third Chinese Dynasty, to all of these civilizations before us that collapsed, and they collapsed because they became brittle. So for us to continue to be sustainable, we need to be resilient, and the resilience is really the art of Aikido in dodging and dealing with these unexpected external events. And then last but not least, sustainability, a sustainable state is one that is harmonious. So that means that the agents within the system, which is, you know, our people, or at least people and animals and so on, that the agents within the system are harmoniously related to one another so they won't go to war. Because war is the biggest threat from the inside. So we have basically three elements. One is your infrastructure, your energy material flows, the fact that you need these resources to survive. That needs to be in place. Then you need your resilience in place to be able to adjust, move, change, and cover from unexpected events from the outside. And then you need harmony, which is to prevent strife and collapse from the inside. Once you have those three things, from a systemic point of view, you have a sustainable place. Something that you notice in the media, but also a lot of people are getting tired of the word sustainability because it's hard to grasp and it's used in lots of ways that it isn't appropriate and they're trying to replace it, trying to replace it with the circular economy or with regenerative or with the donut economy. And the thing is that these ideas, they're very valuable, but they don't replace the word sustainability. For example, regenerative is basically, it's a way that we can work on the process towards sustainability, but it doesn't replace that target. And we need that target. We need it very clearly defined and we all need to more or less agree with it. Otherwise, it's never going to work. You know, if you and I are going to build a house and your idea of the house is to build a cave underground with filled with Lego figurines, and my idea of the house is, I don't know, a tree house made from marshmallows, and we both start working on it, I don't think it's going to be either of them and it's not going to work. So we need that definition, which is important. And that's what I spent yeah, 15 years, 12 years writing that book about, which was a huge relief because it's extremely useful to have that as a tool. And I see the struggle out there. There's a camp of circular economy that feels that that is the way to go. And that's what we should be focusing on. And then there's just a little bit of competition between terms. You get a lot of funding and a lot of money that's being made available for circular economy projects. 
but not for resilience projects, right? So circular economy sits within that self-sufficiency, but not in resilience. In fact, certain circular economy cycles will be less resilient than others. And then you need to weigh how important it is. Or certain circular economy cycles are less socially just, less harmonious than other systems. And then also you need to be careful. This discussion about terms may be a little bit of a challenge for us. So I really stick to that definition of sustainability. And I, at least for myself and our we protect its value. That it will not help to chuck away the word sustainability and replace it with something else that doesn't mean exactly the same thing. And if you want a new word that means exactly the same thing, that doesn't work because sustainability is sustainability. All of the work that we do, including city design and so on, comes forth from these two sentences that sustainability is the state of a complex dynamic system in which it doesn't need resources from outside of a system boundary, is resilient and harmonious, which is useful. I could ask you for hours about building new infrastructure and sustainability, resilience and anti-fragility. But I want to be respectful of your day. What is your role in establishing the future of cities? That is an interesting question because we've been asking ourselves that because I think that my role has changed. And I am still to come to grips with where that fits best, to be honest. So I started company except when I was 19. So it's been 24 years now. For the majority of that, I've been having to advocate uh, not just for the awareness of that we're having a challenge and that we're having a crisis. So at the end of the 90s, no one thought this was important. I literally had people tell me, why do you waste your talent on this? Why don't you go make a lot of money, basically? They didn't see an issue. The majority of people didn't. Now, I think the majority of people will at least concede that we have major crises and challenges. So achievement unlocked. That wasn't so much my doing. That was the effort of millions of people around the world to which I hopefully have contributed. That being said, I don't think that my message has yet landed. And my message is that we don't just have these crises. My message is that if you use complex systems thinking, complex system dynamics as a tool to look at the world and to rethink the foundations of how we live, play, produce, consume, etc., we can hit a 10 birds with one stone. We can really fix some of those fundamental problems that got us into the problems in the first place, but then also helps to tack a lot of those fundamental goals that we're trying to achieve. That one is still a ways to go. So systems thinking is still absent in most professions. The sustainability world out there, for example, we are a sustainability consultancy and design firm, but we've noticed less and less projects for us. That's because there's increased competition, especially from large accountancy offices like KPMG and Deloitte and so on which is fascinating because they have no idea what we are talking about and we can't do what they do either. So they're two completely different industries, but those big consultancies and many others, they offer sustainability strategy, sustainability consultancy services. In my parlance, they have no idea what they're talking about. But 
within their own ecosystem, they certainly do because they make these reporting frameworks that companies can then list their performance and then people can have a look at it, which has a value. But that's not sustainability, that's efficiency. That's just slight improvements on the current state of things. So this larger idea, this larger mental framework is still very rare to find. It's rare to find within our governments, our national governments, our ministries, our planning agencies, and so on. It's rare to find that knowledge. It's almost absent within academia. I don't know a single urban planning school that teaches systems thinking. Maybe there are now, one or two, slowly coming. Funding agencies, large philanthropies, which really are the fuel in the tank of a lot of these projects, they often have no idea. So we've been helping strategy and consultancy for one of the world's largest philanthropic institutions. I'm not going to name it, but they have no idea how to do that. They know now that they should, and that is already progress. So they have awareness that the normal linear way of or impact investment where, you know, you make sneakers instead of normal rubber, you use circular rubber, you still make sneakers. That's impact investment. You have a little bit lower, but it doesn't look at how it changes or affect the systems that we live in. That's a real challenge that I have. So I see that as a role that I have, which is thankless. Often it's hard also to get support and resources. Like I said, the philanthropies and the funding mechanisms don't yet support this. So yet again, we are at the same place where we were 20 years ago when we said sustainability is important and this stuff is going to happen. And everyone said, ah, I'm going to go watch the Muppet Show to a point where everyone now understands this, but we still have the pioneering role to indicate, yeah, look, okay, there's only really one way that we figured out so far to get a grasp on this highly complex system. And that's complex systems thinking and working, which is actually not very difficult at all. It's just a very different way of looking at reality. And that needs to be introduced in schools. It needs to be introduced in policy. It needs to be introduced to a strategy in every single company. Maybe 20 years from now, I can have another interview with you where I say, we've achieved that one and now we go on to the next one. (laughs) I would love to have you back earlier to celebrate your success. In one year, for example, that you changed the whole world with applying systems thinking to every aspect you just mentioned. Yeah, that'd be lovely. And then yeah, from a personal point of view, I want to see Orchid City built. I really want to see an Orchid City built. It can be a conversion of an existing neighborhood or city or a newly constructed one. But I strongly believe in it. I think once we build one, We probably need to build two or three for it to cause that snowball effect where everyone goes, okay, so this works a thousand times better than anything that we've done before. We can also make a lot of money with it and it solves all of these issues. Man, let's go and do that. I had a podcast interview last year with a German scientist who has been interviewing people for more than 10 years about sustainability also. And when I told her about the framework of Orchid City and how it really worked. We went into some detail. At the end, she fell quiet and she said, you know what? After these 10 years, this is the first time that I'm feeling hope because this is real. This can really happen. This is not a pie in the sky thing. This is like a serious and it's really realistic. It can really happen. 
seeing that significantly contributes to a major set of those challenges. Wow, that's hopeful. So I'm thinking about maybe starting a media campaign for Orchid City to just calling it the city of hope, which is also what gives me hope and that makes me go on and wake up every morning and try to face this reality, which isn't always that easy, as you probably know, and many of your listeners will know. I don't think hope is useful when it is attached to something that isn't realistic. That's fantasy. And that's fine. That can be a source of inspiration and so on. But true hope comes from stuff that you know will work and can be done. And that's what Orchid City is. So that's going to be my role to broadcast and try to build Orchid Cities. And I hope that will be the vessel for my other message about systems thinking to find its way towards more people. May I ask why did you start this whole journey when you were 19? I started working when I was 13. I had some trouble in my youth and grew up partially in a foster home. So from an early age, I was confronted with reality in which I had to be quite adult while I was still quite young. And I did all sorts of things to make money. I printed t-shirts, I made websites, I had illegal CD copying a little industry in my bedroom, whatever. Yeah, I need to make money and take care of myself. And as I got older, I've always been a bit fascinated about complicated things, complicated puzzles and, and so on. I figured out that, you know, I can do all these things. By 19, I've been working for six years to also pay for my own education system and so on, that I could try to make money while also working on these major societal challenges. And that seemed fascinating to me, like a huge like playing ground for experimenting with really smart innovations and trying to figure out a way to have fun, exciting things that make money that also fundamentally address some of the problems that we have. That's when I found it, except out of excitement and curiosity and inspiration and a drive for innovation, while also knowing that hopefully contribute to the bigger question. As a designer, I'm an industrial designer, architect and urban planner, basic designer. I have been increasingly identified with that part of it, even though the part of making it look nice, making it work great, you know, good marketing project is also part of that challenge that I enjoy. But so when we started out, I never imagined that I would be like an expert on sustainability or systems thinking. That grew. That is something that grew out of necessity. These were the tools I needed to learn to do justice to the challenge that I saw. And so I started doing it. I saw that it worked really well. And now I'm helping to broadcast that message. But the thing that I personally get really excited about is the projects. Give me a design project and I will help you change the world. That's my role. That's what I hope to be able to continue to do. And I do hope that the projects that we've done so far, especially, I don't know, Salesforce Park in San Francisco, which is the world's largest ecosystem rooftop, which is quite amazing. Climate parks that we designed, the food systems for the Arabian desert that use only salt water and sunlight, and of course, Orchid City, that these will start to permeate and start helping other people to realize that there is a pathway which is meaningful and realistic, and that we can go ahead and get it done. Tom, thank you so much for your work. 
And I highly appreciate that you came on the podcast and talked about your hopes and dreams and aspirations and optimism. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? I'm very grateful that there are other people like this that want to engage in a meaningful dialogue. If there are folks out there that have a grasp on any of these projects and they need support or insight, let me know because that's what I'm here for in that sense. I also wish you a lot of luck with the podcast and I hope that you continue to have really engaging conversations. I will be, I think we talked about it, publishing a new book probably near the end of the year, which is an easy to read, very accessible, not very thick little kind of story about this, everything that we've been talking about today. Because the current book that I took 12 years to write, Symbiosis in Development, is 480 pages, which is a bit scary to a lot of people, but that all really has the foundational things. And again, it's free. You can download it for free. It's Creative Commons. So download it, spread the word, make it useful. But the new book will probably have a bit of a larger reach and I'll be sure to send you a copy so you can dive into that little storyline. Thank you so much, Tom. I will definitely read that book as well. And thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. It was really interesting to hear from Tom. His description for planning for the future is being in the business of preventing war. Not to mention his interest and expertise in planned cities like Neom. Richard Morrison talked about Neom previously in episode 105. You can find out more about Tom online, all the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Tom's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes and leave some feedback. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?